When I played baseball competitively in high school at the varsity level and in college at the varsity level, I used to sharpen my spikes before every game because I wanted to take somebody out. When I was in college, I once drove 110 miles from College Station to Austin, Texas in 59 minutes. That's another story. <laughs> when my daughter was nine years old, I got kicked out of her softball game before the game started. <laughs> True story. When I was my second year here at Camp Ozark, third year, in 1987, we were having a special event at the large gym called Treasure Hunt, and there were only about 80 of you guys, and I ripped one of you guys so bad that I felt about this tall. I mean, I laced him. We had a good friend that died a week ago today, and she was buried on Wednesday, a very close friend who we know is home with the Lord. But we got to be friends with her because we sat behind her at football games for a number of years back in the 80s. And one time I was being so loud and so obnoxious that this wonderful sweet lady turned around and goes, Sam, will you just shut up? Last summer, I was standing right up there on that hill during the Ultimate Solution. Now, you haven't, many of you guys that haven't been here before, you haven't experienced the Ultimate Solution, okay? But it is intense, at least for me it's intense. And I was intently watching The Ultimate Solution. And Scott's brother-in-law came up to me and made some silly suggestion. Now, he was doing it in a very pure motive way. And I was as rude to him as you can be to anybody in the history of the universe. So that's the guy you're working for. That's who I really am. Because the fact of the matter is, I'm really messed up. But I can tell you this, because guess what? I know that each of you is as messed up as I am. I know for a fact that if we were to take a movie of your life from last September to right now, there are many parts of it you would not want me to see, nor would you want your mother to see, nor would you sure want God to see. I know for a fact that some of you this past year, for whatever reason, had too much to drink. I know that. I know for a fact that some of you this past year did something with a member of the opposite sex that you shouldn't have done. I know that some of you out there lied. Some of you cheated. Some of you stole. Some of you were completely lazy. Some of you were deceitful and devious on a continual basis. I know that. How do I know that? Because that's the human condition. And the first foundation of the faith is this great theological statement. I am hopelessly, helplessly screwed up. 
All of us are. And that's the condition of the humankind. We are all hopelessly, helplessly screwed up. Now, there are four types of people when you consider this statement. The first group is the most dangerous. They're the people that come to Camp Ozark, or you know back at college, and they have it all nailed. They can recite the books of the Bible forwards and backwards. They can point you to a scripture like this. They go to every Bible study. They go to every breakaway. They walk around like they are the cat's meow. Ha! The reason they're the most dangerous group is because they're exactly like the Pharisees. Nobody has it wired. Nobody has it wired. Nobody has it wired. Whether it's your pride or your insensitivity to your own shortcomings or whatever it is, there's not one of us that has it wired. The second group is a group that probably most of us fall in. And that's it. You know, like I was talking about earlier today, we strive for perfection, but we continue to fall short. And oh, we're pained when we fall short. But we fall short again. And, and we fall short again. Then the third group, some of you may be in this group, are the group that you've done such things, at least in your mind, and maybe you've done them repetitively, that you feel like you are completely unworthy. There's no way that God could accept you because of the things you do and the things you think and the things that you say and the way you act. And so you hide from God because you are completely unworthy. And then the fourth group is a group that doesn't care. And for that group, we just pray for the blessing of God's Holy Spirit working through someone to touch their soul. But speaking to the first three groups tonight, particularly those second and third group, one thing that we often think is, well, you know, you can look at me and say, yes, yeah, Sam, I can understand you really are screwed up, okay? And, and, you know, I'm screwed up too, but let me tell you something. When you look at the great patriarchs of the faith, those guys were awesome. I mean, look. Those guys are just unbelievable, and that's why who they are, and that's what it takes. Ha! Go with me to the seventh chapter of the book of Romans, where we find the man who wrote more books of the Bible than any other man. Where we find the man who was blinded on the road to Damascus and became the greatest follower of Christ there could be, and went out into the Gentile word and spread the gospel. Where we find the man who stood up to mighty Peter. And in Romans 7, this mighty man of God writes this, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. You ever felt like that? I don't understand why I do what I do. Because it's really not what I want to do. And I hate it when I do it, but I do it. That's Paul. 2 Samuel 11. We find David. Now David's a very unique 
person in the Bible because he's the only person in the Bible described as a man after God's own heart. This is the man after God's own heart, handpicked by God through the prophet to be the head of the lineage of the Savior. David. And we find him strolling around the roof of his palace. And as he strolls around one evening, perhaps like this, out of the corner of his eyes, he spies on a building a few blocks over a fine-looking woman. And she's taking a bath. Now, in his mind, David knows and understands what he must do is immediately avert his gaze and walk away. And yet what we find this man after God's own heart doing is turning and staring at the beautiful woman bathing on the rooftop. Soon his hormones kick in and he motions for his attendant and summons him to go get the woman. The woman Bathsheba, whose husband is out fighting for David's own kingdom, comes as summoned. She sleeps with David, and they conceive a child. In a few weeks, this man after God's own heart is dismayed by the fact that he's fathered this child out of wedlock with one of his noble soldiers' wives, and so he conspires in his head to make the problem go away. And so this mighty man after God's own heart brings Uriah home from the battlefront and orders him to go home believing that he will sleep with his wife and therefore the pregnancy can be covered up and attributed to him. But the man is too loyal. He says, as long as my brothers are out there fighting for you, King David, I'm not going to go home to the comforts of my wife. I'll sleep right here by the walls of the palace until you're ready to send me back. This man, after God's own heart, now panics. And the next day, he throws a feast and he gets the soldier drunk for the very purpose of making sure he'll go back and sleep with his wife and probably not remember anything. But again, the man refuses. Now, in a state of total panic, this man, after God's own heart, writes a note out, seals it with his signet of the king, sends it back with with Uriah to the front where the commander reads it, and it says this, charge the wall. When you get there, have everyone draw back except Uriah so that he will be killed. And David, this man after God's own heart, not only commits adultery, he commits murder. I do not understand what I do. What I hate, I do. And I keep on doing. Paul continues in the seventh chapter, in verse 20, he says, look, For I have the desire to do what is good. You ever felt like that? I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. 
I don't just do it once. I do it again and again and again. I make the same mistake again and again and again and again. I can't help myself. Abraham was summoned in this manner. Leave and go. That was it. Leave your family who's raised you up and who you're planning on spending the rest of your life with and go. And you're going to go. I'm not telling you exactly where you're going. We'll just work it out along the way. And Abraham is of such great faith that he does exactly what he's commanded to by God. He leaves his family and he goes with his wife. And in the 12th chapter of Genesis, we find Abraham and his wife Sarah wandering around in the, in the wilderness when a famine hits the land and they move to Egypt so that they can have something to eat. But when they move to Egypt, Abraham becomes fearful that they will see how beautiful his wife is and they will kill him. So he says, look, wife, Sarah, here's what we're going to do. I'll tell them you're my sister. And then that'll be awesome. So Pharaoh, thinking Sarah is Abraham's sister, takes her in his house, but by God's hand does nothing with her. And it's revealed that she is the wife, not the sister of Abraham. And Pharaoh says, what would you tell me that for? Here, here's some food, here's some stuff. Take and go. Abraham says, oh man, okay, I got it now. I got it now. In the next chapter, in the next chapter, in the next chapter, in the next chapter, God honors Abraham, is faithful to Abraham. Abraham now gets it, right? Wrong. In the 20th chapter of the same book, we find Abraham and Sarah in the land of Gear, I guess is the way you pronounce it. And all of a sudden, King Abimelech is there, and Abraham gets scared again. And he says, hey, Sarah, I'll tell you what we'll do. A brilliant, unique idea. We'll tell him you're my sister. And he does the same thing. He commits the same sin. He has the same lack of faith in the Father that he did the first time. And once again, the whole thing is a catastrophe. This great man of faith commits the same sin again and again, just like you and I commit the same sin again, 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 and again, whether it's the sin of the flesh or the sin of pride or the sin of, or the sin of guilt, whatever it is, again and again and again and again and again and again and again. Oh, and it makes us feel horrible. Paul continues. What... Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. What a wretched man I am. You ever felt that way? What a wretched per How could I do that? Why in the world did I do that? Peter, in Luke 22, the great Peter, 
who left his wife and family, threw down his fishing net, and followed Jesus based on the one command of Jesus. Peter, who is the unquestioned leader of the apostles. Peter, who when the rest of the apostles were huddled in fear in the boat when it was getting rocked across the waves, Peter had the guts and the courage to get out of the boat, and he, the only human in history, actually walked on water for a few steps until he lost his gaze on the Christ. This strong Peter, who just hours before had told Christ he would be by his side, he would never deny him. We find him in the courtyard after Jesus has been captured. He's standing by a campfire waiting to see what's going to happen, and a woman says to him, hey, I recognize you. You're one of them. He goes, uh-uh, <laughs> no, not me. I'm not with that guy. A few minutes later, another person sees him and says, hey, you're with him. You're one of his followers. His voice raises a little bit if you read all of the interpretation. No, not me. Not me. A third time, someone says, you belong to him. You're one of his. And this time, the Scriptures tell us, Peter curses, damn it! I'm not one of his. Don't you get it? Luke tells us, that at that exact moment, the eyes of Peter locked with the eyes of Christ. What a wretched man I am. The fact of the matter is this, young people. All of us are hopelessly screwed up. And the Bible is very clear. 3.23 for the wages of sin is death. Any sin, every sin, each sin, regardless, the consequence of that sin is death. That means physical death and it means spiritual death, which is eternal separation from the Father. That is the result of sin. That was actually 6.23 and 3.23 it says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every person that's ever lived in the history of the universe has sinned and fallen short of the God. Basically, the first foundation of the faith says we are hopeless. But there's hope. And we know there's hope because we know this. Paul became the greatest missionary in the history of the church. David was selected to head the lineage of the Savior. Abraham became the father of the chosen people of God. And Peter was selected by Christ to be the founder of the church. These hopelessly, helplessly screwed up men were saved from hopelessness by hope. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. But tomorrow, hopelessness changes to hope. Thank you.